Thank you, Sam and Randy, for leading us this morning. Let me encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 11, as we continue to make our way through this incredible reflection of the character and nature of God. Exodus chapter 11 is the shortest uh, shortest chapter, if you will, in our English Bibles, the shortest chapter in our Bibles, and it stands here in the middle of a movement from the plagues into the Exodus narrative, the narrative of where God ultimately provides salvation for the nation of Israel. And in some ways, this text continues this prophetic utterance on behalf of God to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and also ultimately to the nation of Israel. But in this text, a clarity in this prophetic utterance of ultimate destruction for Pharaoh and the Egyptians who rebel against God. Last week we noted that this ninth plague of darkness is in some ways a foreshadowing of the darkness that indeed is going to capture the hearts and lives of the nation of Egypt. But in chapter 11 we move from a foresh- chapter 10 we move from a foreshadowing of this death and destruction through the image of darkness And in chapter 11, we move to crystal clarity from God to Pharaoh, by extension to the nation of Egypt, as well as to the Israelites, of what God's intended purpose will be. This narrative, of course, does not begin here in Exodus chapter 11. This narrative begins all the way back in the book of Genesis as God calls to himself Abram, and Abram will serve as this head of this Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel. And and God's call to Abram, beginning in chapter 12, resuming here in chapter 15 with a greater sense of clarity, repeated again in chapter 17. Here in chapter 15, the Lord reminds us or gives us a prophetic statement of exactly what is going to happen in the future as it relates to God's people. And look what the Bible says here in chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for how long? 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with what? Great possessions. From the very beginning of this narrative of God's relationship with his people, God has indeed promised to Abram, to the nation of Israel, his covenantal people, a number of truths. A truth that we see communicated yet again in the New Testament, even in the opening words 
of the Gospel of Matthew, as we even hear of this promise of God through Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us. And concluding at the end of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 8, 28, we see this Emmanuel, God with us through Jesus, as one who will be with us always, even to the ends of the age. God has promised his presence. God has promised to his people his forever abiding presence. And what we see communicated in this text of Scripture, what we've seen throughout this plague narrative, is God continuing to display to the nation of Israel that he, Yahweh, will indeed be faithful to his covenantal promises to his covenantal people, Israel. We begin this narrative in similar fashion to what we've seen these other narratives communicated in a set of scenes. And here in this first scene, we're going to see God do what he has been doing throughout the entirety of this narrative with a few exceptions. Here, Yahweh is going to give his commission to Moses and Aaron to carry out a task. Hear the word of the Lord beginning in verses 1 and 2. And the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. Do you hear this fulfillment of the promise already stated in Genesis chapter 15? When he lets you go, he will completely drive you away. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. So in this commission on behalf of Yahweh to Moses and Aaron, it's not only a commission that they go appear again before Pharaoh to make a declaration, but it's also a commission that they go with a very specific message before the very people of Israel. And so the Lord begins this text, hey, go, go again, and I'm going to pour out one more. Notice how your English Bibles and my English text translate this. I'm going to give one more Plague. Now this is a new word that we've seen in this plague narrative in your Bible and my Bible translated plague. But literally from the Hebrew, a blow or a strike of judgment. And so read it in this way, yet one more blow. Yet one more stroke of judgment. There is in this communication a sense of Finality. There is a sense in which God's patience and his long-suffering with Pharaoh and the Egyptians is coming to its conclusion. And God is very clearly saying to Moses and, and through Moses to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to his people, there is one more stroke of judgment, one more blow that I am going to bring against Pharaoh, and not only upon Pharaoh, notice what the text says, Pharaoh and upon Egypt. 
In this case, Pharaoh and Egypt serve as a representation of what God's judgment will be to every nation, to every worldview, to every person who stands in rebellion against God. There is a final judgment from God communicated in this text of Scripture, a warning to Pharaoh. And in the midst of this warning, in this commission, is a sense of salvation. And haven't we seen this narrative displayed on a number of times? Salvation comes through judgment. God is communicating his judgment, but notice the salvation, if you will, that he is going to grant to his people. How is that salvation communicated? It's communicated in the provision of God. God is going to make provision for his people. His people will not suffer. His people aren't going to have to wonder. His people are going to be provided for. And look what Yahweh says. Hey, you Israelites, go to this group of people that have held you in captivity for, four, for some 400 years and go ask your neighbors that they might give of you their jewelry. Look at how the text actually says this. Every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. God has provided a means for protection and provision for his people. And why is God responding in this very specific way? Because God is showing his faithfulness. God is communicating his very character as one who is abounding in steadfast love. God is not going to turn his back on his people, even though his people at moments have sensed that this is exactly what God is doing. No, in this text, God reminds his people of that same covenantal promise that he gave to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12. God is bringing that to fruition in a real way here in Exodus chapter 11. But neither should the Israelites be surprised. In this narrative, particularly in this book of Exodus, this isn't the first time that God has made this promise to the nation of Israel that he was going to provide for them in this way. Go back with me in your book, in your Bibles, to Exodus chapter 3. And listen what Yahweh has said to his people in Exodus chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go how? Empty. You're not going to go empty-handed. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, and any woman who lives in the house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. You shall plunder the Egyptians. God is now reminding Moses and Aaron and the Egyptians, or the Israelites, of his promise. 
The promise in Exodus chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, did not come overnight, did it? It didn't happen in a week. In fact, it didn't happen in several months. Years would pass before the nation of Israel in this text is going to experience the faithfulness of God. Friends, the temptation of my heart, the temptation of the heart of the Egyptians, is that period of waiting. Of waiting to experience the fullness of God's promise. It's in those moments in which our hearts are tempted to doubt. It's when our minds are tempted to operate with a hermeneutic of suspicion, to wonder, is God really going to be true to his words? It's in those moments in which we hear the voice of Jesus as he reminds his disciples to let not their hearts be anxious. Every one of us at this moment is sitting in a period of waiting, of having heard and believed and trusted in God's promises, and yet waiting for the fulfillment of those promises. The fulfillment of that promise he has given to us in the return of the Lord Jesus Christ when God, through Christ, will right every wrong In the meantime, friends, like the Israelites, we too must deal with injustice. We too must deal with wrong. And while we deal with it, we persevere, keeping our eyes, as the author of Hebrews reminds us, focused solely upon Christ. But notice what God does here in this next verse back in chapter 11. God has not just given a commission to Moses and Aaron. He's not just given his word that this is exactly, indeed, what is going to take place, what is going to happen. God is going to give his people his favor. God is going to give his people his favor, and this favor is a sign of his covenantal love. Look at it, verse 3. And the Lord did what? Gave. Who gave? The Lord gave Yahweh himself. This is a work of God himself. God gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. This is a moment in the narrative in which we, like the nation of Israel, And like Moses and Aaron, we can only step back and say, this is something that only God could accomplish. Moses, the arch enemy of Pharaoh, the one who has set himself in opposition against Pharaoh, the one who is declaring the word of God 
to Pharaoh, the one who is the representation, the mouthpiece, the spokesman on behalf of God. This guy who has brought calamity throughout the nation of Egypt, economic calamity, physical calamity. This guy finds favor with the Egyptians. This is something, friends, that only God himself could accomplish in this narrative. And we don't even have to wonder. The text tells us, and the Lord gave. And the Lord provided. And the Lord is being true to his word. And God is fulfilling his covenantal promise to his people. This text highlights the incredible faithfulness of God and the obedience of Moses and Aaron. Why does Moses, why do Moses and Aaron ultimately find favor in the sight, a work of God, but also their faithfulness? You remember several plagues over. Moses was not only giving a warning to the people, he was also communicating salvation to the people. Hey, for both Egyptians and Israelites alike, if you will bring uh, into the stable, into the barn, your animals and your people, when the hell comes, they will be spared. By this time in the narrative, the Egyptians have now moved from questioning Moses to trusting Moses. And every bit of it has to do not with Moses and Aaron, but with God's faithfulness. With God's righteousness. With God's commitment to his word. But look what happens here in verses four through eight. Moses and Aaron are now going to go and stand before Pharaoh. They already have received a warning from the last plague. Pharaoh said, hey, don't come before my face again, for in the day that you come before my face again, he threatened him. You're not going to survive. In other words, I'm going to knock you off. I'm going to kill you, he says. But look what happens, verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, About midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a, notice what the text says, what type of cry? A great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, 
And after that, I will go out. And he, that is Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. The Lord, in this text of Scripture, gives clarity to the calamity that awaits Pharaoh and the Egyptians. This should not be a surprise either. It's another faithful fulfillment of God's promise to his people. This isn't the first time that the narrative has spoken of of such calamity. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 4. While Moses is down in Midian, the Lord is, of course, communicating to Moses there, reminding Moses of exactly what he wants him to do and, and the faithfulness that God will display. And look at chapter 4, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. In other words, Israel is mine. Israel is in a position of, of prominence, of preeminence, if you will. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me, that he may worship me, and if you refuse to let him go, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Israel is God's covenantal people. Israel is the people upon whom God has set his affection and his love and his devotion. In Exodus chapter 4 and here in Exodus chapter 11, there is this juxtaposition of God's love for his people and God's wrath toward those who reject his word who reject his command, who reject his son. What is Pharaoh's problem? Pharaoh's problem is he is rejecting God. Pharaoh's problem is he is rejecting God's word. Pharaoh's problem is he is rejecting God's messenger. Pharaoh's problem is he's rejecting God's plea. <coughs> Pharaoh's problem is he's rejecting God's firstborn son, Israel. God reminds Pharaoh in this text of what awaits every person who rejects his word of what awaits every person who rejects his will, of what awaits every person who rejects his plea, of what awaits every person who rejects his son, his son Jesus. See, friends, this text is a statement of God's wrath, of God's anger that is poured out on those who do not trust in Jesus as God's one 
and only Son. This image is an image that we'll see in just a few moments from the book of Revelation. As Revelation depicts this moment in which God's final eschatological judgment will be poured out against all people, against Satan, against the devil, against everyone who has rejected his son, Jesus. Friend, you might think for a moment like Pharaoh that you have escaped God's momentary judgment. You might suppose that because things in your life are currently headed in a good direction, you might suppose that because you're five years past some major event in your life that you understood in some measurable way to be God's judgment, and because between that event and now God has not completely wiped you out, that you have another day to tread lightly on the good grace of God. But this text reminds you and me of the same text that Peter gives us in 1 Peter chapter 2. That we ought not misunderstand the patience and the kindness of God. For that patience and kindness is for one purpose, to draw you and me to faith in Christ. But that patience will run out, friend. And if you're here today and you reject Jesus as God's son, you reject Jesus as the Messiah, the same fate that awaits the firstborn of the Egyptians will be the same fate that awaits you. It might be today. It might be two years from now. It might be 500 years from now. But each of us will stand before God in a final moment of judgment. Friend, have you trusted in God's firstborn son, Jesus? Not firstborn in terms of order. Paul uses that word firstborn in terms of an image of prominence, of of preeminence. There is no other like Christ. He is Lord. He is Savior. He and He alone has suffered the wrath of God so that you might experience the righteousness of God. Would you trust in Christ today? Would you believe in Jesus? There's not only this sign of judgment, but God continues to yet again highlight and display his faithfulness to his people. There's a cry here in this text. And in fact, there is a great cry here in this text. Notice again, verse six, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as never been experienced, never been heard before. But this isn't the first great cry that we've heard in this text. The first great cry that we heard in this text is in some ways the cry that set this entire motion, this entire narrative in motion. The first great cry that we hear is in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25. During those many days, the days of Egyptian slavery, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. 
And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Friends, God responds to the cry of his people, and he brings them salvation. But God grants the cry and causes the cry of desperation at the destruction of those who have rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord. The narrative continues to show us that God has indeed expressed his covenantal love to his people, and there is nothing that will stop Yahweh from communicating his faithfulness to his people, his faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to his character. God is going to do what he has promised the people he will do. And then look at this last scene here in verses 9 and 10. Here in this passage of Scripture, Pharaoh's stubbornness is going to yet again reveal God's power. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. We've heard this all the way back from chapter 4, communicated on a number of different times. Pharaoh's not going to listen to you. That's okay. This narrative is going to continue. Why? That my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. What is God's ultimate purpose in communicating these divine wonders throughout this elongated period of time with an increase of severity? These wonders we've already seen from chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. Chapter 10, chapter 14, God is communicating his divine judgment in these dramatic ways so that Egypt and Israel may know he and he alone is God. God wants his glory to be, to be displayed in the most magnificent of ways. He wants his wonders to be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Ultimately concluding with Moses' statements for us in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, as a sign of judgment against all of Egypt's gods. There is no other God like this God. There is no other God like Yahweh. There is no other God who can provide everlasting salvation for people. There is no other God who is not defined by a boundary line, who is not defined by the boundary lines of another country. There is no place upon which God is limited. Did you even see what the text says? Where's God going to go throughout Egypt to bring about this destruction? Everywhere. 
There won't be an ounce of the land of Egypt upon which God himself will not be able to go. Why? Because he is everywhere, buddy. Because he's all-powerful. Because he and he alone reigns supreme. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders a summary statement of everything we've seen from the very beginning with the Nile turning into blood, through frogs, through locusts, through hell, through boils, culminating in just a few short weeks in this text of Scripture and the death of the firstborn and then ultimately in the destruction of the Egyptian army at the bottom of the Red Sea. Moses and Aaron did all of these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord continued to strengthen, harden Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Why? For a massive display of God's salvation and judgment for those who will walk in obedience to God's command. This text points us to the faithfulness of God and reminds us that we too, like the nation of Israel, Await the fulfillment of God's promises. I want you to hear those fulfillment of God's promises communicated in a couple places at the conclusion of the book of Revelation, beginning in Revelation chapter 19. And these promises of God are not only promises of his faithfulness to his people, as we've seen in this plague narrative. There are also promises of God's wrath communicated to those who reject his word, as we've seen in the plague narratives. And here are these promises in Revelation chapter 19 and verses 14 and 15. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at verse verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that that fly directly overhead, come and gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs by which he deceived those 
who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Chapter 20, look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and saw for where the beasts and the false prophets were and they, were, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire a fire. God's judgment against all who do not believe. But notice Revelation chapter 21. God's salvation marvelously displayed for all who by faith trust in Jesus. Verse 21, chapter 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. God's judgment and God's salvation. What will you experience on that day of judgment? Will you experience God's wrath? Will you experience the finality of God's wrath for your rejection of Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, for your rejection of Jesus as Lord, for your rejection of Jesus as the one who bore the wrath of God on your behalf? and rose again on the third day, conquering death forever? Or will you experience on that resurrection morning the new heavens and the new earth, ultimate, eternal, final salvation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for the communication of your faithfulness to your people through your word. We ask God this morning that as we reflect on this word, that by your spirit and through your word, you might strengthen our faith to be people who wait patiently upon you, God. That we might be people who hope in your word. And God, we pray that if there be one person here today that has not trusted in Christ, that they would hear these words of of judgment. That they would turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Would you spend a few moments where you're seated this morning and reflect on the preaching of God's word? In what ways are you demonstrating your hope and trust and faith in God? Are you being patient? In what ways do you struggle with that trust? In what ways do you struggle in wondering if God is indeed going to be faithful? Would you confess those struggles to the Lord and ask Him for strength to walk in obedience? Perhaps you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ. And God, by His Spirit, through this text, has shown you of your need to surrender your life to Christ. Would you, where you're seated this morning, cry out to God, confess your need for Him, In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word through singing. Friend, if you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, we'd encourage you to turn to someone seated next to you. There are plenty of people seated around you who would delight in sharing with you how you can trust in Christ. As we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad to share with you as well how you can trust in Christ. Perhaps you would like one of us to pray with you that the truths of this text of Scripture might be lived out in your life. That you would hope in God. That you would trust in Him that you would patiently wait on him. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. 
Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing with us?